0: Here's a Japanese
1: sandman Sneaking on without you Just an old second-hand man
0: will buy your old days from you He will take every sorrow Of the day that is through, And will bring you tomorrow
1: so Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, an occasional podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker, I'm Scott Norwood, and I'm Matt Sanderson.
0: And this week, we're talking about weird films. So... <laughs> I mean, when we say weird films, I... What obviously, do you mean,
1: a weird film?
0: Yeah, obviously a lot of the films we watch are weird. So what have we each decided? So, hang on, let's back up a bit here. What we're going to do here is... This is going to be another one of our countdowns where we choose three each and ramble on about them. So, yeah, what, once again... We have not told each other ahead of time what our choices are, so it's going to be a surprise to each of us. And And probably backup's ready. Yeah, yeah, this probably means Matt's chosen all our choices for us once again. (laughs) 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 Um, So, uh, yeah, what criteria have each of us used, Matt?
2: Mainly looking at a film where the story is... bit more harder to follow does does this does this make sense what the hell have I just been watching rather than something that just looks stylistically or um thematically odd it's where the story itself is very hard to follow is what I've what I've gone with
1: okay it was very important for me that the film uh wasn't just um confusing or had a twist it was that even at the end of it I couldn't look at it and say ah it all makes sense now I wanted to make sure, because that wouldn't really feel weird, it would just be like, oh, that's got a twist, and oh, now I kind of understand it all. Um, so it was important for me that it was. there was quite a lot of moments where one would say, what the hell is going on here? And then at the end of it, still not really fully grasp it, or there'd be various interpretations of perhaps what was happening.
0: Now, this is interesting. I've gone for something quite different. I've gone for th- films which are very weird stylistically, but perhaps aren't necessarily that challenging in terms of the plot. So, we should get a, a bit of an overlap in styles here. Hey, you're good, yeah. Also, I mean, I, I thought initially about trying to limit myself exclusively to horror films and uh, to try to keep in keeping you know, with the theme of the show. But, yeah, in the end, I just decided that I'd go for three films that I just wanted to talk
1: about. I didn't really restrict myself to horror films, uh, but I did want something that had a slightly disturbing nature. That I sort of felt I would feed into a, a role-playing game that would perhaps be some kind of inspiration.
2: Hmm. I think probably all minor subgenres of horror. So there'd be horror slash something else. Like one's a horror noir; it's being billed as one's more horror sci-fi, and the other one is just part horror comedy, weird, random,
1: unquantifiable trash, really. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and also, I didn't go for films that were just. I don't know, out-and-out out weirdness, really. Um, I tried to get ones that had got... That I've, I've seen films that have been out-and-out out weird that I guess it, it had to sort of capture my interest and I had to really enjoy it, and some films that I've seen I could yeah. say were weirder than the ones I've chosen, but I haven't necessarily enjoyed as much, if that makes sense.
0: Yes, yeah, very much the same for me. I, I could have chosen much stranger, more surreal films, but these are, are three films that genuinely appeal to me.
1: Yeah, all three of mine I would recommend to, well, not everybody, but um, I would be happy recommending to people to watch.
2: Uh, two of mine I'd definitely recommend to other people. The third one I recommended to people in my office at work and they wanted to kill me afterwards. So <laughs> Excellent. Always yeah. well, a good sign. Yeah, but
1: then you did sing Killing in the Name of at the office party. Yes, <laughs> listeners, <laughs> yeah, so this, this is true. It's the only time you can get
2: to yell, fuck me, I won't do what you tell me, other than the top of a microphone and not get fired afterwards. <laughs> So, on that note, shall we talk about films? Okay.
1: (laughs) and uh, so, Scott, I believe you are kicking us off. I'll kick us off.
0: So, um, I'm going in chronological order here. My first film is an American film that was made in 1975. Um, I first came across this film at a cinema club in Kings Cross back in the 1980s, um, a a cinema club called The Scala. Uh, The Scala was a fantastic place. Uh, It was in a very rough area of London, um, and they used to show interesting films, cult films, uh, on a daily basis. You know, it was a members-only cinema club. You'd go along and they'd be you know, they'd have at least a double bill every night, and sometimes at weekends they'd have all-nighters. And you'd go along and it'd be, it'd be everything from kind of Pedro Almodovar to... Um, uh, to you know, things like Cafe Flesh, which was a, a fairly weird porno film, a uh, post-apocalyptic porno film, which they used to show a lot. To uh, Clockwork Orange, to yeah, I, I, some some really kind of low-budget, strange stuff.
1: Are there still places like in London now? Because I mean, certainly in Milton Keynes, we've got two multiplexes which show just the same old stuff all well, the time.
0: Well, sadly, the Scala went out of business uh, around 1992, 93. Um, and is a great loss to the cinema-going community. But there, there was one film in particular that they used to show regularly there. They had one of the few surviving prints of it. Um, and th- th- this is going to earn us the explicit tag on iTunes when I talk about this film. <laughs> uh, so, so be warned. Um, it's a film called Thundercrack. Um, and it's got an interesting history to it. The history that I've, I've heard and I've read about, I don't know how true it is. Uh, is that a bunch of investors decided they wanted uh, to make some quick money by investing in a porno film, um, and so they they hired a director and a writer who had done a few odd projects before, um, but not necessarily you know, straight pornography, and they hired them to to write and produce this film, and they produced this incredibly strange black and white art house black comedy gothic horror uh, pornography. Um, which, I, it, it is pornography, there, there is a lot of uh, unsimulated sex in it, uh, there's a sex scene about every ten minutes or so, but at the same time, it is one of the fucking weirdest things that you will ever see in your life. The, the basic premise for it is a kind of classic old dark house film. There's this mad old alcoholic woman living in this house in the middle of nowhere, and um, who finds herself uh, suddenly playing host to a bunch of uh, refugees from a storm that's been going on outside. Uh, A few different colours of people. They've been cut off by the river, uh, blowing the bridge out, and they just need shelter from the storm. So they come to this place. And this this woman hasn't had company for some time. And as as things develop, it turns out she and her family have got a bit of a strange history. And um, she brings them into... Her sort of strange little world, whereby you know, for a start, you know, she gets them to change out of their um, uh, their wet clothing in a room uh, that is basically filled with sex toys, uh, while she uh, uh, watches through a hole in the wall and masturbates with cucumbers. Um, and certainly, one of the cucumbers ends up being eaten by someone later on, who comments on the rather unusual flavour. <laughs> um, but. Uh, <laughs> It then, it then gets stranger and stranger as it goes on. I, I, from the pornography aspect of it, one thing that that's fairly unusual, particularly you know for you know 1975, is not only is it a fairly hardcore film, but it's um it's pretty equal opportunities. There, you know, there there's uh, men having sex with women and men having sex with men, women having sex with women. It's you know uh, all of the characters in it seem to be bisexual, and everyone fucks someone else. You know, one of the others at some stage it seems. Uh, Um, but, yeah, the, um, (laughs) the story as it goes on is just wonderful. For a start, there's lots of really pretentious, um, (laughs) intense dialogue about really stupid stuff that goes on between the characters, delivered in a, a fantastically hammy way, but, but, um, is the secrets that come out particularly the secrets relating to um uh, to the woman who owns the house and the fact that you know her husband was eaten by locusts while out in the field one day and she now keeps his remains pickled in jars in the cellar and you know there's one scene in the uh the film where she brings these jars out with bits of her husband floating in them and just sits there and has a conversation with him uh, her son was uh, something of a, a sexual adventurer uh, and, you know, it was all his sex toys in the room to begin with and then it turns out that, you know, she speaks of him in the past tense but it turns out that one of his uh, escapades changed him somewhat and he's not quite, you know, the man he used to be uh, that he's become something a bit more monstrous and she keeps him hidden in the cellar uh, and, of course, he gets out at some stage. But then... What what sends everything for a real loop is um, another vehicle which which crashes because of the storm uh, is um, a uh, something carrying a whole load of animals from the zoo uh, and uh, the the um, the driver turns up fairly late in the proce- uh, procedures um, he, He's played by George Kushar, who actually was um, a kind of fairly famous independent filmmaker who also coincidentally wrote Thundercrack. Um, and <laughs> he turns up with this story about uh, his history with this gorilla at the zoo. Um, who basically um, his colleagues at some stage got him very drunk, put him in the gorilla 's cage the gorilla ended up having sex with him, and uh, both he and the gorilla are now obsessed with each other uh, and he 's a bit concerned because the gorilla's broken loose uh, when, with all the other uh, uh, zoo animals he 's got a bit of a violent history and he's he 's you know trying to work out whether you know, to give in to his desires or try to protect everyone else or you know. and and so of course it ends up with with him in a wedding dress uh, in the son's bedroom trying to attract and seduce the gorilla to keep everyone else safe. Uh, and, yeah, it, it is that kind of film. It's shot in black and white, it's very low budget. Uh, you lots say it's of
1: that kind of film, not <laughs> like there's loads of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, obviously it's that kind of film. Yeah, yeah, we've all seen that kind of film. <laughs> I think we can all go home now, actually. <laughs> Let's just wrap up there. <laughs> I, I do remember you telling me about the film a long time ago,
2: and I think the two enduring memories were the uh, the, the marriage scene to the gorilla and the cucumber. Yeah, yeah. yes, uh, it, it, it
0: the film I think qualifies as one of the weirdest films I've made. Because I mean, apart from all those elements, you know, just the dialogue, just the interactions between the characters, it, it is one of those films where every five minutes, while you're watching it, you will involuntarily say "What the fuck." <laughs> you will. It, you, you just can't <laughs> help it. Those words will come out of your mouth. I don't care if you don't swear. You will be saying "What the fuck" all the way through it. <laughs> hmm. So, Matt, top that. No, I can't.
2: You <laughs> already <I> can't. <laughs> Uh, I might come close with my last one that's the one that I did uh, recommend to people at work and so they they came back and threw it back on my desk <laughs> um, uh, my first one is very normal and mainstream in comparison to that um, jumping forward a few years to 1997 um, the only film I can think of where Bill Pullman plays a jazz musician um it's from the king of weirdness in the more mainstream sense, although if you think of David Lynch being mainstream, that's a, a statement in itself. Um, Lost Highway. I'm looking up all to see if I've crossed one on his list. No, no, no. Hey! Sorry.
0: I'm surprised. Mm-hmm. There we go.
2: Yeah. Um, it's a... Well, I was to say it's a very weird film. Yeah, What well, was well, 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 surprise? Um, it's almost two films in one, but in the same way that Heart of Darkness and Apocalypse Now are the same story. That you have two, the two halves effectively tell the same story from two different characters' perspectives, but one gives more and um, more light on the other. Um, it begins with, let's say, Bill Pullman as a jazz musician and Patricia Arquette as his wife. That one day, that they um, living out in wonderful Hollywood mansion, um, they receive a videotape on the doorstep, and they watch it, and it's essentially it's like a stalker video of the outside of the house. And gradually, over the remaining parts of the store um, the intro, um, the, the first act, as it were, they receive more and more tapes that proceed to go into the house, um, showing through the various rooms, showing through the various corridors, and leading up to their bedroom. While these tapes are arriving, Bill's character, because I can't remember his name, so I'll just say Bill, he meets a rather odd character um, at a party. Oh, yes. Yeah, I oh, remember this one. <laughs> it's referred to as the Mystery Man which I think is a great way to portray a devious, enigmatic NPC in any game. So he's, he's a wonderful character. And surprisingly enough, played by an, a- an actor by the name of Robert Blake. Huh. Yeah, so harking back to our, our <laughs> yes. Haunter in the Dark episode. Yeah, there's a real man out there. This is what happened to him afterwards, you see. this is what That's the least he... weird thing about him. Though, <laughs> <episode>. <laughs> this is what happened after the Haunter in the Dark got him. We went yeah. on to be an actor. Where he walks up to... Paul woman's character and says, oh we've met before haven't we? And he says, no we haven't He says, yeah we met at your house, in fact I'm there right now, pick up the phone and call me So of course he does and the man on the other end of the phone says I told you I was at your house and he says, how are you doing that? And promptly just gets a laughter back in his face and the same conversation is repeated almost word for word later on in the film and so, after he goes back home he finds last videotape is of him murdering his wife um, in his bedroom, and then being taken off to prison, thrown in a prison cell, a rather odd montage sequence. Um, very that involves a, a house exploding in reverse. The prison guard comes on the next morning and finds it's a completely different person in the in the jail cell, and then this person who works as a car mechanic rather than a jazz musician. Um, goes back to his normal life after they realise, well, you're obviously not a, um, a wife murdering person, so what the hell are you doing here? We're not going to really try and explain this, we're just going to throw you back into your real life. Um, meets up with a character that has been previously said to be dead in the first half, whose wife looks exactly like Patricia Arquette, was in fact played by the same actress, um, that proceeds to enter into an affair with the car mechanic, and it she gradually sheds um, more information that Bill Pullman's wife's character in the first half was essentially cheating on the jazz musician, which is what f- um, prompted him to murder her. Um, there are various little um, hints that are thrown along the way, like the same shot being used when they're, um, when they're both talking on the phone, shots are close up of the mouth and the phone. Um, again, the mystery man coming back, which from some analysis that I've looked at online... Um, there's, there's quite a good one on YouTube actually that uh, delves into some of the symbolism in this that the Mystery Man is effectively a metaphor for evil and that it's evil entering their lives um, prompting them to do things that it's a, he isn't a person as such he's, he is an external force or concept and that as he, as he becomes more engaged with the characters you review, um, gradually you see that they are more corrupted and that they are forced into extremes like for instance committing murder Um, one of them throws someone else through a a glass kitchen, um, through a glass coffee table a rather nice shot of the the edge of the table going through a guy's forehead Um, and then the rest of the film realising that this is essentially um, as as the analysis I read anyway, surmised it this is the guy's dream in the prison cell trying to rationalise or trying to explain what's happened to him before he gets put in the electric chair and the last scene of him <clears throat> almost going through this electric convulsion in the car on the lost highway, running away into the dark, is him being put in the chair and fried. And hmm. so it's basically giving an explanation of why he committed, um, why he murdered his wife.
0: That makes it quite a parallel to Mulholland Drive, then.
2: <laughs> yeah, in a way. It's, there, there's a lot of similarity. In fact, one of the scenes is filmed, I think, on Mulholland Drive, where um, there's the tailgating scene. Um the, a mobster hates people tailgating him So when someone does it He lets them overtake And then promptly forces them off the road And beats the guy senseless
0: Yeah, it, it strikes me From what you were saying there as well uh, you know, If we are talking about The gaming aspects of, of some of this stuff mm-hmm. you know, I never went into the gaming
2: aspects Of Thundercrack Sorry, oversight there but, uh, uh, what, what game would you use Thundercrack As an inspiration for, Skull? All of them <laughs> <laughs> but, but, yeah From from, from
0: yeah, what you were saying It sounds like the Mystery Man Could be quite an inspiration If you wanted to use
2: Nealithotep okay. Yes, mm-hmm. very, very, very much so I mean he is the epitome of what I think a lot of the avatars should act like
1: well I'm going to go back when that was 1997 yep last one well I'm going to go back 20 years to 1977 with the same director predictably uh, and to Eraserhead for me is the kind of quintessential weird film really David Lynch's first uh, proper feature film full length feature film uh, took him three years I think to make no, five years, over five years uh, to, uh, to to film, and he was kind of doing odd jobs and working to support himself through the, the whole process of uh, getting it filmed. Indeed, there's one point um, when uh, we see Jack Nance opening a door, and I think it's uh, a year and a half before we see him on the other side of the door, because <laughs> that, that was how slow the, the filming process was. Uh, I looked for it on this, this uh, viewing, and I didn't really spot which... Which scene that was, obviously the continuity guys did a good job. What to say about it? Well, we have Jack Nance, who will be familiar to uh, viewers of Twin Peaks and various other David Lynch films, playing Henry. Uh, There's his wife, um, Mary, and together they have a baby. That's all pretty normal. Well, it would be in any other world. (laughs) What is the world they're in? I don't know. Is it kind of post-apocalyptic? Is it just kind of run down? Is it just kind of otherworldly? Right to be of Dundee in the 1980s. <laughs> Did it? Mm-hmm. And um, before that, of course, we have the man... In, I think he's attributed in the credits as the man in the planet. Some strange guy in a, what looks like a bit like a railway control room pulling levers to change the points on on, on railway tracks. Uh, and as he... Uh, but it, with all these kind of strange lesions over his body and he pulls levers and, and strange things happen, which perhaps represent sperm or something like that, these things kind of falling into water and into holes. The whole thing is shot in, in black and white, which I think probably adds to it, given that it's kind of low budget, it's perhaps easier to get away with some of the special effects in black and white. But actually the special effects stand up very well, given that it was a kind of low budget or relatively low budget film made in the 70s. It remains reasonably timeless, I think, um, and still just as watchable and just as disturbing. One of the strange things is the mutant baby that Henry and Mary have. is this strange thing, which is clearly their baby, and they're kind of looking after it and uh, have strange apparatus to try and uh, keep it alive when it gets sick. Lynch has never discussed how he made this thing or what it is. People have theorised it was an embalmed calf fetus. When they looked at the rushes, Lynch even made the projectionist uh, cover his eyes so that um, only Lynch saw the rushes. Yeah, apparently, again, a kind of a um, story is that Lynch went and buried it somewhere and uh, ceremoniously kind of got rid of it. But
0: he, he was trying to cover up the fact that he was using his own child.
1: Maybe so. <laughs> but, yeah, it is a pretty strange thing, and it is a very good special effect. Oh, it is absolutely nightmarish and utterly convincing, The mundane things in Henry's bedroom, it's kind of a run-down, seedy bedsit room, mostly taken up by his double bed and a few uh, mundane kind of um, cabinets, one of which has got a drawer in which he opens and drops things into a bowl of water inside. Who knows why? And then by his, on his bedside cabinet, he doesn't have a pot plant, but he has a kind of David Lynch pot plant, which is the pile of earth with this kind of half-dead tree sort of stuck in it. Why wouldn't you? Hey,
0: and of course, there's the woman who lives in the radiator.
1: Well, yes. He. Uh, this seems to be a sort of fantasy of his, or, well, as much as we can surmise. Uh, he first sees her. I think he's laying on the bed, kind of looking at the radiator, and um, yeah, there's this strange woman that lives behind the radiator, and it. it very much reminded me of the scene in uh, Mulholland Drive when we go to the when we go to the theatre, and, and there's the woman singing. Um, Silencio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the the set and everything for her, the woman behind mm-hmm. the radiator, is very much like that set. Except the one in Mulholland Drive didn't have ovaries on her face. That is true. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Um, beyond that, if you haven't seen it, then, yeah, well, you know, treat yourself. Um, I know certain people who, who still you know, 20, 30 years later still can't bring themselves to watch the whole thing, having seen bits of it in the past. I think it's one of those, I think Lynch is often accused of just being weird for weirdness' sake. I think that's wrong, I think. Um, if you just try and be weird for weirdness's sake, I don't think you achieve what he achieves. It kind of takes you to another world, really, if you can kind of tune in with it. He's, he's very reluctant to make any comment about what his films are about, Um, or to elaborate on them, he just thinks that the audience should make their own mind up and and form their own opinions. Um, It gets great um, accolades from other directors. Kubrick made the cast and crew of The The Shining uh, watch it to get in the right frame of mind for making the film. Uh, Mel Brooks saw it and offered uh, Lynch the Elephant Man, um, which fortunately uh, David Lynch took up. George Lucas saw it and asked Lynch to direct Return of the Jedi. Everybody got the Return. Do you remember when we talked about Cronenberg? He got offered Return of the Jedi. I seem to recall. Um, no one wanted to be. If, only, if only Dave Lynch and Cronenberg had teamed up to make Return of the yeah. Jedi, how good would that be? We'd
0: still be having nightmares about the Ewoks.
1: <laughs> You're not. <laughs> Different type of nightmare. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I mean, what else can you say apart from man-made chickens? Really.
0: So, for my second choice, I've also uh, chosen a film from 1977, uh, but this one's a Japanese film. Uh, It's a film called House. It's it's a very difficult film to describe because it's it's explaining what makes it a weird film doesn't fit very well into words. Um this is
2: pretty weird from what I remember. Yes. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, everything about what makes this a weird film is part of the visual style. Um, it is ostensibly a horror a horror film, but it is maybe the least horrifying horror film ever made. Um Or tell that. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs>
1: The least horrifying horror film. Yes. there would be some competition for that, I would think. But but, <laughs> that that sounds continued. like an episode we should do, you yeah. know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> but, but, yeah, the, this... The, there is no attempt, really, to make this scary um now the, the director is uh a chap called uh nobuhiko uh obayashi uh he made another horror film later on called the discarnates which I, I remember seeing back in the 90s uh which is an altogether different film and is actually quite disturbing uh but you know in a very sad poignant way but there's uh, yeah nothing disturbing about about this film at all um the, the the basic plot is a group of Japanese schoolgirls uh, had planned to go on holiday together um, uh, during their summer break. Um, one of them has a falling out with her parents uh, or with her father and her new stepmother and decides to make contact with her aunt, who she hasn't seen since she was a kid, um, and you know, ends up taking all her friends on holiday to the, the aunt's house out in the Japanese countryside. It turns out the aunt is a hungry ghost, uh, that um, she uh, died sometime after the, uh, the Second World War, that uh, she pined away because her love was a fighter pilot who died during the war. And since then, she has kept herself alive basically by eating young girls. Um, and, oh, it, well, alive may be the wrong word, but she kept, she's kept herself going um and she's basically eaten everyone in the surrounding area there's just her in a watermelon cellar in the area and that's it and yeah the the girls go along to the house they get devoured by one by one uh there's a witch's cat involved yeah i mean it it all sounds like a fairly basic horror story now the film was the the people who who did the cinematography, had apparently had a background in making commercials before. And so what they brought to it was this kind of hyperkinetic, hyper-colourful, comical, fast-moving, just bizarre approach um, that, that is like, you know, commercial art. There's completely inappropriate um, music playing the whole time. It's all kind of happy, bouncy music and and jolly sounds. You know, it, 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 whenever there's an action scene, it's done in a completely unrealistic way with wire work and stuff like that. Um, n- nothing about this film visually kind of makes sense as a horror film. It's it's all done not not even really for last, but <laughs> that, I, I'm, I'm struggling to describe it here because there's nothing else I can compare it to. But again, you know, like like Thundercrack, uh, you, you will just spend the, the entire time sitting there going, "So what does it,
1: it makes up? it so weird?"
0: So let let, let me find some uh, examples of scenes. Um, There is... There's a scene where one of the girls... Uh, all of the girls are known only by their nicknames, which apply to particular uh, personality traits. They're all very one-dimensional characters, deliberately, and the names reflect this. So the the, the lead girl is called Gorgeous. Uh, there's Fantasy, uh, who lives in her own little dream world. And, of course, any time there's something weird that goes on, you know, she's the one that witnesses it, and everyone's always afterwards, ah, it's just fantasy. Uh, there's Kung Fu, who... <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) I, I think you can guess what her trait is there's Mac which is short for stomach because she eats everything in sight uh, there's Prof who reads a lot and there's Melody who plays musical instruments and there's a scene where Melody goes along, uh, finds the piano in the music room and starts playing it and this whole kind of psychedelic thing kind of comes up going along with the music and lights in the piano and the, the, the skeleton in the corner starts dancing along to it and you know, her finger, you know, her fingers start getting chopped off by the piano and she ends up being eaten by the piano and when one of the you know, the music's still playing when one of the other kids comes through later, they can just see her fingers dancing along the keyboard, her seven fingers just playing, um, and the skeleton still dancing in the corner and stuff. No one ever pays attention to the fact that the skeleton's dancing, but um,
1: okay.
0: So, yeah, I mean that, that's a fairly typical, typical. Yeah, mm. yeah. I th- th- the thing is, I once the weirdness starts, it doesn't stop. It's just yeah, you know, it, it's. I, I suppose the closest thing in terms of pace I can compare it to is The Evil Dead Two. Where you know once it gets going, it just doesn't stop. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's just one kind of visual gag and fright after another, bang, 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 until uh, until it gets to the end, uh, where their teacher character turns up, meets the uh, the watermelon seller, and gets turned into a pile of bananas. Um, and that's that's pretty much it. Uh, it yeah, see it. it, it it's it's a style. It's a stylistic um, <laughs> novelty. Uh, it, it's a unique film. You will never see anything else like it. Mm. Uh, and it is
2: utterly, utterly bizarre. Yeah, that definitely sounds in my book as weird. <laughs> right, mine, going forward to 2005. I feel a good 30 years ahead of most people here. This is really... No, I'm going to jump on, I'm going to jump on. Hey, I'm not going to complete them. A film by... I can read my own handwriting. John Maybury directed this. It's another film that, when I've looked back at it, I keep thinking there's multiple ways to interpret it. On on the surface, you interpret it as as a time travel film. That you think, this is going to be... trying to either fight the future, change the future, etc. But then you think, when you get towards the end, actually, is the main character alive in this at all? Is this actually all happening or not? Is this some kind of weird... Dream that the kid, uh, the guy's having as he's laying dying. So at the very beginning of the film, the guy, get, um, the main character, gets shot in the head in the Gulf War. Um, the film in question is *The Jacket*. Oh yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Um, the story goes that, say, so, um, Gulf War veteran gets shot in the head by um, by a child soldier, uh, gets shipped back to the US, where he's probably discharged out of the army, and he's basically he's hitchhiking. And along the way, he meets a girl with his mother. Mother's a raging alcoholic who is promptly throwing up from the, on the side of the road after she's after she's been drink driving. Um, the car's broken down. He fixes the car and makes kind of, makes friends with the girl. Promptly gets booted away as being get away from my daughter, you, you pervert, by the drunk uh, by the drunk mother. Gets picked up by another car, and then it becomes a bit more of a disjointed narrative because what happens at that point isn't necessarily revealed until later in the film, but. It becomes aware that the guy has been um, well not framed, but he has been accused of kidna- uh, of killing a cop. They said that along somewhere after he got picked up, this cop's ended up dead. The other driver in the car is missing. He is then wheeled off to a um, to a, a psychiatric hospital for the criminally insane. So what happened is that he, um, the driver, had killed the cop um, that pulled him over on the side of the road because he'd already been. Um, I think he was breaking parole or something, and basically uses the um, the main character, Alien Brody, played by, um, to take the rap for it. Of course, he then ends up in psychiatric hospital, even though he's not actually insane. He's just suffering from memory loss and dam- um, because he has got brain damage from having been shot in the head. And um, that while he's in there, he is subjected to a series of, what effectively a combination of, drug induced um, hallucinations versus um, with a combination of sensory deprivation. That he's dosed up on a load of drugs, thrown into a straitjacket, hence the name of the um, name of the film, thrown into a, um,
1: a kind of walk draw.
2: Yeah, it? that's it. I was thinking, morgue drawer is probably the best way of describing it. <coughs> and then, while he's in there, it's the it's the visions of what he sees. Mm. He believes that he's projected forward in time to a point where the young girl that he met on the side of the road is now um, a degenerate. <coughs> Uh, wasting her life on drugs, booze and, um, and cigarettes waking, waking, um, working at a diner after her mother um, died in an accident where she basically burnt the house down in her sleep a um, cigarette fell out of her hand while she, uh, while she was passed out on the sofa and that he is piecing together the fact that he is supposed to have died in this hospital and it, co- it jumps back and forth with the different um, sessions of him going in and out of this drawer um, beginning to piece together how did he die and trying to fight, trying to fight the future the weird thing that I found about it is that he does repeatedly make comment to at the beginning and the end of the film the first time I died and the second time I died that there was all white around me because eventually he falls down he lands and cracks his head on the, um, on ice, which is what which is what I up with him dying at the end of the film. Um, so no one will ever tell him as to how he actually died, so he can't he can't fight what's coming. He just knows that he's going through the motions for it. But he does lay seeds to say, for instance, right mother, um, to the mother, don't smoke. For instance, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to ruin your um, your child's life, and so forth. But the kid, well, I don't know whether it was. A, it strikes me as being the film is otherwise well budgeted and well cast because there's a few good there's a few good names in there. That must have been a deliberate choice why they use the same actor who played the kid who shot him at the beginning of the film to play another character later on in the um, later on in the same film. No. Oh, do they? Yeah, it's the kid that's the, there's one of the kids that the nurse who's looking after him is having prob I can't remember what the condition he's got is, but I bas- think that got to be a directorial
1: choice, really, not just a coincidence. Yeah, exactly. Which yeah. makes
2: which makes me think if it's the same thing that this is the key. There is that it's she um, Alien Brady tells her the nurse the way to solve his condition is by giving him electroshock therapy, and by doing that he becomes normal, and that's what convinces her. To let him out of the hospital and to um, to give the message to the mother that there's a deliberate choice there because it is that that character is a hinge moment in the whole thing, mm. which makes me think that is this actually say him laying there dying and this weird tale going through his head of when he's thinking about say first and second time he died whether is he did he actually die on the operating theatre etc. Right. That again it's a very, it's that ambiguity and that weird. Yeah, I remember it being a bit there.
1: ambiguous. I remember watching it and enjoying it, but kind of not being entirely clear on what happened. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, say so and then ends with him so in the
2: last moment of being th- kind of last moment of his life, if it is that being uh, projected back, I'm uh, putting the drawing projecting back into or uh, forward into a future that he has altered, so that the young girl is now a nurse, the mother didn't die, and that he can pick up his life from there. But again, it still
1: did that happen. It's mm. a, it is very odd.
0: Yeah. yeah, it sounds like there's there's almost shades of altered states in there as well. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it made me think of that, with yeah. the, especially being locked in with the drug trip and. Uh it did a uh, regression in a um, sensory deprivation tank taking LSD was it? Uh, masculine drugs? I think right. um, and it kind of regressed to a kind of a primordial state
0: mm. Yeah, it, it, it was based uh, it was a screenplay by Paddy Chayefsky based on the researches of uh, uh, an American scientist by the name of John Lilly who experimented on mm. himself in exactly that way mm. Mm. Uh, and the film was made gloriously by Ken Russell um uh, the the master of weird filmmaking. It's a pretty tricky I, film. It's I, good. Uh, utterly. Yeah, I, I I don't know why I don't have any Ken Russell on my list. That's a major oversight. We we're, we're doing another one of these episodes later on, just not
2: like <laughs> Ken Russell. There, there was one that I was very tempted to put on my list that would have been a seventies film, but I thought when I was trying to do my categorisation of what is and isn't a weird film, it might be bloody odd but it does have a coherent story running through it. So I thought no for that reason I want to Do you, you want to tell us what mind. that was? It was going to be the Holy that.
1: It was going to be the Holy Mountain. Oh really? Mm-hmm. You dismissed that because it was too coherent. Yeah, the, the story was. Co- the, the story was coherent. Was it?
2: Yeah.
1: What well, film were you, give you watching? Take, give or take.
0: Yeah. yeah but in, in it, was, it was allegorical. But.
2: Yeah. But it, it was. It was a good symbolist versus meta, um, symbolist versus. Um, shit, what's the other one? Surrealist. Surrealist. Yeah. Through um, this film, but it but it did make sense that it was the man's journey into spiritual enlightenment, and that it was them going forward up the hill to try and become one with the gods, and that it, they transcended the medium in
1: which they were in. So yeah, you, you could explain it. But it was quite yeah. weird, though. It was very <laughs> weird. weird <laughs> but the <but> toad <laughs> battle reenacting like the uh, Spanish conquering. I don't know. The conquering Spanish oh, the is, conquistadors. Is pretty yeah. damn strange. <laughs> yeah. The yeah. Battle of Tenochulin, yeah
0: the, the only reason I didn't put it on that list was I figured one of you two would.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, Alexandro Djalorovsky or Hodorowski um, is is one that. Uh, well, that and um, El Topo. Yes. Yeah. Those are the kind of mm-hmm. the default weirdness. They were kind of too weird to go on the list, really.
0: Well, well I, I, I think, yeah, we, we probably all backed away from them yeah. because we assumed we'd be in conflict with one of the others. <laughs> There's the, the,
1: the holy trinity of Jodorowsky, Lynch and uh, Cronenberg, we yeah. figured. Mm-hmm. And we've done um, Cronenberg to death already. So. We've already had a Cronenberg <laughs> episode, so I don't think we'll be hearing any Cronenberg in this episode.
0: No. But No, we, we, we should do a Jodorowsky episode at some stage.
1: Yeah, we probably should, yeah, mm. yeah. Um, yeah,
0: and that way we can make up for the fact that we all left him out here. Because, yeah, <laughs> because th- this show should be dedicated
1: to <laughs>
2: him. <laughs> if only he'd done Dune. Done <laughs> yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, my next one is probably, I may be wrong, but probably the biggest box office hit of all of us um, from 1999. Um, and I think this is what made it all the weirder for me actually, was watching it first time, probably about. 10 years ago and um, sitting down on a Friday evening and uh, sitting down and watching it and thinking this is going to be a fairly kind of um, run of the mill Hollywood film you know I've heard it recommended by friends who went to the cinema to see it and um, turned out to be remarkably strange was uh, being John Malkovich oh yes Um, (laughs) so it starts off with a puppeteer uh, married to a, a woman who keeps a range of pets um who are um, receiving psychotherapy, which is kind of a bit weird in a kind of Woody Allen-esque kind of uh, way. He then replies to a, an advert just looking for somebody with fast hands, and then the weirdness kind of starts because he goes to this um, office block uh, looking for floor seven and a half, and you kind of think, well, okay, maybe that's between floor seven and eight. Well, yes, it is, but it is only about four and a half foot high, <laughs> so that just struck me as it's one of those things which is kind of fairly mundane and could actually happen but it's just really weird so everybody's going around kind of hunched over and uh trying to operate normally in this this bizarre uh half-sized uh um floor it's, it, well, it's the kind of
0: element that feels like it's lifted out of a dream. It's yeah, kind of, yeah, you know, exactly. It, it, you know, in a dream, that would make perfect sense. Yes, of course, it's floor seven and a half, and yes, of course, you, know, you go to work and bend over because it's half mm. a floor. And in a dream, you just accept that as part <coughs> of the logic of, of what's
1: going on. And it up. does kind of get accepted by people. They do kind of question, isn't that a bit weird, but then they kind of accept it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you pretty much describe one of my former jobs as just going to work and getting bent over. In my case, it's getting bent over a table. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, <laughs> you're an extra on Thundercrack.
1: <laughs> moving on <laughs> a, bit, a few you know minor kind of odd things happen um which, which just seemed like slightly uh, odd comedy um the boss is over 100 years old um the receptionist can't understand a word the guy's saying even though he's saying it quite normally then the real weirdness starts when something falls down uh, the back of a filing cabinet And the main character moves the filing cabinet out a little bit to reveal a small door in the wall. So he pulls it out. And in the door in the wall, uh, which looks like a sort of uh, maybe kind of size one might expect a little safe to be or something like that, it's kind of a a very old-fashioned door. And it seems to open into an earth passage or a passage into the wall. And he starts climbing through it. And up to this point, it hasn't been that weird. But then he just kind of slides down this... This hole in the wall into John Malkovich's head, <laughs> and everything he now sees is through John Malkovich's eyes. Well, if that's not weird, I don't know what is. And then he um, <laughs> he, he gets turned out of it at some point, you know, after his uh, time's up, it um, gets turned out onto the is it Jersey Turnpike or somewhere oh, like heck. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, and then well, it just kind of gets weirder from there on, really. So what the reason I put that in is because, yeah, I did feel like the the carpet was pulled from under my feet a few times. It is kind of weird. It doesn't. At the end, it does kind of make a bit of. In, there is some internal logic in in into the, inside the film, but it is it is very weird. Um, and I kind of think that it has that aspect that I like in games, where uh, you kind of think you know what's going on, and then things change um and there are kind of in- inexplicable elements um which are kind of on the one hand comedic on the other hand quite disturbing
0: mm. and and the screenwriter you know there's charlie kaufman yeah. seems to specialize in that you know, he he very much kind of lives on that border between you know quirkily humorous and absolutely fucking nightmarish
1: and went on to do it- Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yes, and adaptation yeah. and uh,
0: Synecdoche, New York, which is an amazing film.
1: Oh, I've not seen. Yes, yeah. yes, mm-hmm. yeah. So that was my second one. And the little bit that I found because we we looked at that film
2: in film studies uh, while I was at university. Um, one of the nice throwaway bits in there is that Malkovich was a pretty good choice to use because he was fairly kept himself out of the public eye to a, a degree and was quite a private individual. Um, one of the comments that's made repeatedly throughout the movie is that people quickly keep commenting on how well a performance he made as, as a uh, role in a Jewel Thief film. That Up until that point, he hadn't made a film about being a Jewel Thief. <laughs> one forward a couple of years, he steals the crown jewels in Johnny English. <laughs> <laughs>
0: nice. Yeah. Yes. Yes.
2: yes. Yeah, Charlie Kaufman is not only
0: a great screenwriter, but... but he, Pressing into... He, he, <laughs> Scott? Right, my final film is a German film from 1989 <laughs> Sorry, what? Those of you listening to this will have just missed the look of daggers that Paul gave me Wait, it's, it's
1: 79, not, did you say?
0: 1989
1: 89, It's probably alright then
0: <laughs> it's, it's, it's not the one you think but it is the same director
1: Right, okay um,
0: so um,
1: so it isn't Necromantic.
0: No, it isn't Necromantic.
1: Okay. Uh, <laughs> so we know what your third film is then. <laughs> no,
0: no, it's not that. I, I, I lent Necromantic to Paul a long time back uh, and, and he and Mike Mason watched it and heated uh, it with a fiery passion. It is one of my favourite films. But oh. this, 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 is, this is another film uh, by Jörg Bookwright, the same director. Uh, this is a film he made uh, after he made Necromantic and Necromantic 2. Uh, it's a film called The Toad's King. Um, and it's... <laughs> I, I've seen interviews with him, and this was sort of his attempt to... keep within the kind of morbid obsessions that he had, but get away from the basics of a horror film and do something a bit different. Uh, so this is his attempt, I suppose, to do a sort of arthouse film and it's fucking weird and um, grim, very
2: very grim oh
0: isn't it just um, I, I encountered this film around not long after it came out um, Jörg rights films were impossible to get hold of in the UK I, I, I still think that it's the case that The King may be the only one that's ever been released here and even then it was released in the cut form um, the, the, the others have never been released at all uh, you can only get them one import but um, back, back in the late 80s and early 90s, I used to go to Camden Market in London a lot. And there were a couple of guys there who uh, ran this stall where they did bootleg videos. And they'd um, basically they'd go over to Amsterdam uh, and they'd buy up a lot of uh, videos that weren't available in the UK and they'd, they'd duplicate them and they'd do the bootlegs on the stalls. And I, um, I ended up getting all the, uh, the York Book ride films through them and various other things that were unavailable at the time. Um, and um, yeah, th- this this one was the one that got me the most. Uh, that 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 initial copy that I had, the Dutch version of it, one of the part of the charm of it, I suppose, was the fact that it was quite badly subtitled. Um, the, the, the the translations were eccentric, which added an additional degree of weirdness. The more recent releases, which have been professionally subtitled, um, you know, <coughs> lose some of that charm. So, for example. Well, let's explain what the film's about first of all <laughs> but, <laughs> that will help. so the, the film itself it's seven short films uh, with the unifying theme um, and the theme of it is suicide they're, they're short films about suicide uh, the, each each little short film corresponds to a day of the week and you know the idea is its seven suicides in Berlin there is sort of a linking theme to some of them there's this chain letter that's going around uh, from uh, a group that's calling itself the the brother hood of the seventh day uh with this story in it about you know uh how god created the the, the earth in six days and on the seventh day he killed himself and you know uh, and they're trying to you know encourage other people to to follow in god's footsteps and kill themselves as well um but that's almost beside the point that hardly enters into the film at all It's, um but in in the opening scene there's this Incredibly organised, anal-retentive man um, uh, who, you know, as it turns out in in the segment earlier, you know, this segment is just making his preparations, putting his life in absolute order before he kills himself. And in this initial Dutch, Dutch translation, there was this this long, long scene. Oh, it seemed like a long scene where he's on the phone with his job. Uh, you know, basically, you know, talking to personnel and and you know, making his arrangements to to um, uh, to to give his notice and you know asking about his holiday entitlement and then taking his entitlement to so that he doesn't have to go into work again and explaining you know saying goodbye to everyone and stuff like that. The English subtitles in this first version I had there's there's two or three minute scene there's just this subtitle underneath it all saying I quit. <laughs> 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 oh,
1: so, lazy. Uh, <laughs> we, uh,
0: so I mean the, the the more the more current versions are a bit less strange than that, um, but my favourite subtitling from the, the old one not because it was funny but just because the, the slightly awkward phrasing made it more sinister um, was the last line of the film with this little girl who has just drawn a picture of this this uh, crowned uh, skeletal figure um, and she's explaining to the camera you know, this is de king he makes it so that people don't want to live anymore which I, I just thought was a lovely turn of phrase, and yeah, they, they, they tidied that up with the new version, and I think that's a loss.
2: The bit that I remember that was the, um, the, the, the segment that hit the most me was the more, it wasn't a story, it was the documentary one. The bridge? The bridge. The mm-hmm.
0: br- uh, yeah, this, there, there, there is this scene, there, there's a bridge over a valley uh, in in you know, this section of rural Germany and there, there's no narrative or anything like this. They, they just take the camera out there and they shoot this bridge from different angles. They shoot it from the inside of the bridge. Yeah, they, you, you, you could, they, they move the camera down in such a way that you can look down through holes in the bridge and see the valley down below. They look over the edge and so on. And the whole time they're doing this there's just this lists of names occupations and ages just going across the right. bottom of the screen all the way through and that's the entire segment and yeah i just remember the first time i was watching this watched it for about the first 10 or 15 seconds and then suddenly it clicked what was going on right and i, I was quite shaking for the rest of that it's only about a four or five minute segment but mm-hmm. yeah i the, the the other one that really got to me. I mean, so, some of the some of the segments in it are a bit over the top and silly, but but the you one
2: that she, she Wolf of the SS interspersed into it was definitely one of them all over the well,
0: top. Well, yeah, except that that's very deliberately supposed to be a bit of satire, and mm-hmm. then yeah, it's got a framing sequence which, which puts it in context, which makes it very sad and poignant. Mm-hmm. The uh, the one that got to me is the the final one. Uh, no, it's, no, it's the final or the penultimate one? I, f- I forget which. Um, but yeah, it's it's just this guy who's obviously extremely mentally ill, lying in this very bare bedroom on a mattress on the ground, uh, curled up in a fetal position, crying. And, you know, he he kind of tosses and turns, obviously getting more and more wound up. Uh, he, He starts crying and keening much more. And he starts bashing his head against the wall. Uh, and you know the crying goes on and he just bashes and bashes and the, you know the, the the camera work in you know, the camera work in the whole film is is incredible but the camera work with this you know just moves around follows his disorientation as this is going on and you know you, you sort of you, you, you see the, uh, you, you sort of feel the reaction when when yeah, his head goes in you know, and it's not overdone i mean it's just you know about a half dozen bashes in the end but you know the the, the last few are enough and then the the rest of it there's about 30 40 seconds of him just lying there as he's you know gradually losing consciousness on the ground and it's just the intensity of it i found gut-wrenching and interspersed amongst all these there's a little black and white bit that goes along where basically um a book writer and a couple of his colleagues made this fake human corpse um they made it out of um Things like bread and animal offal and gelatin and uh <coughs> and so on all things that were biodegradable and they put it in this this um uh the, the, this um shed or somewhere on a pile of earth um it, it had real human bones within it as well um and they filmed it uh, stop motion over the course of five weeks as it decayed. Uh, and then they just intersperse this amongst it, and the, the, the decay isn't quite realistic because apparently they used strawberry pudding for the skin because they wanted something that was the right colour but was still biodegradable that maggots would eat. But the way it breaks down isn't quite right, and you know, instead of you know kind of bubbling and stretching and, and so on like you know decaying human skin would do, it kind of fractures and bits of it slough off, and and it it, it looks very unnatural and very disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah th- there is no single narrative all the way through this there's just these these short snippets these insights into you know the ends of desperate lives and very sad people um it's the music in it is haunting it's just very spare piano score for most of it or um you know there's, there's some violin work um that Makes that makes the whole thing an incredibly emotional experience. Um, it's a disorientating film. It's a disturbing film. It's a moving film, and it is utterly unlike anything else I've ever seen. And mm. yes, it is fucking weird.
2: Mm. Yeah, I agree. That was definitely an impact when I saw it as well. Well, from emotionally distraught, hey, what a surprise! That's on Scott's list. Um, <laughs> but to a, what could be described as a horror <laughs> comedy, for mine. Oh. Uh, my last one. And we yeah, have, yeah. Well, this is from 2010, from Quentin Dupio I think he's a French director. I'm not sure if I get the you know, surname. Scott grinning I think he's worked out. No, no, that was your pronunciation. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, he <laughs> begins with a D. Right. It's on the surface. It's quite a, quite a normal story. Um, Robert um, wakes up one morning um, in the middle of the desert, admittedly. So a little bit different. Um, with the idea that. He's going to go out and put his newly found psychokinetic or telekinetic powers to um, to good use. Um, and on the way, while he's heading to um, the nearest town, he bumps into this uh, woman uh, who's driving down the road, who's quite nice, and he develops an obsession with her. So he starts going into town, and he's kind of made it his mission that he wants he wants this he wants this girl that she will be she will be his. And all throughout this, you've got an audience that's watching from a distance. Um, Literally, an audience within the film that are watching via uh, binoculars, almost taking commentary on the whole thing after having been given an un- introduction to what's going to happen by one of the characters that portrays a cop later on in the film, um, who arrives having driven through a chicane of uh, chairs that's planted on the middle of a deserted road. Um, that he, um, They hit virtually every chair en route. He then climbs out of the boot and gives this introduction to the film that makes very little sense. The thing that's a little bit odd is Robert is actually a rubber tyre. Yeah, the film is called Rubber, yeah. and you have this—you have this, so say, this killer tyre. In fact, it's the best killer tyre film you will ever see. The only killer, killer tyre film you'll ever need to see. Um, that rolls around, and as soon as he comes across people he doesn't like, like cops, he does the whole scanner thing. He he vibrates, he wobbles, and then a cop's head explodes. Okay. Yeah, he he rolls <clears throat> he rolls around, he holds this town to ransom, um, desperately trying to get hold of this girl while while the rest of the audience watch. And the audience are gradually being killed off by having been poisoned by the producers to the point where eventually they're hoping that all the audience are dead and that then they can wrap the film up. Except one of them decides, oh, I'm going to catch you at your own game, I'm not going to eat or drink anything. So he sits there and he's watching through the whole thing. And eventually they're like, oh, we've got to carry on with the story then. Crap, we haven't thought of what to do from here. <laughs> and uh, so the tyre keeps on doing its rampage. Um, and eventually they blow it up. So what happens when you blow up a rubber tyre? Well, of course it gets reincarnated as a tricycle and starts coming, and comes back for more.
1: <laughs> I think you've outdone yourself with this one, Matt. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Are you sure this is a real film? You, I have got it on DVD, and I inflicted it on my workmates. Yes, it is a real film. My <laughs> workmates have a lot to up with. <laughs> this is why they came back and said never again. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: so you, you don't want me to pass on my copy of Thundercrack for you to lend to them?
2: I uh, okay, I'll lend that to them. Uh, there's, there's a few of them. That I think probably get kicked out. Of there. <laughs> Boy, it is say to say surreal and bizarre from beginning to end is an understatement. Hmm. It's the end of it. Ends with the, the rubber tire revolution, of which he's rolling on in his new tricycle form, um, going on towards Hollywood, picking up all these deserted, all these um, forgotten spare tires along the route that are lying to waste in the desert. And it's just this army of rubber that's advancing towards Hollywood. Push. Mm-hmm. Nice. Mm-hmm. Very good. Short, sweet and pure, what the fuck.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm going to bring us bang up today, well, almost, last year, uh, 2012, uh, with Barbarian Sound Studio, which uh, Scott and I took a trip out to um, some obscure little art cinema at Northampton, which I thought I must look up the the details for and, and keep in touch with and never have done. Uh, it was somewhere around the back of Northampton or Wellingborough or somewhere, yeah, wasn't it? It was,
0: so, it was in Northampton. It was touched in a car park somewhere, I I yeah, so it remember was, and,
1: yeah. Yeah, it, was, it. It seemed quite a nice little place, but... Yeah.
0: Uh, it, we should it, check it, it out again. Yeah, it, it was some kind of local council. Yeah, because... They, yeah. That, that's right, there, there, there was council offices or something like that built in. It, yeah. if, if any of our listeners are from Northampton and know what place we're talking about,
2: please let us know. Yeah, <laughs> we'll try and
1: remember it. Fill
2: we'll in the hole in our memory. Yeah.
1: So it's got the great Toby Jones, who is... Uh, pretty much great in everything, um, starring as Gilderoy, um, a, uh, a sound engineer from the 1970s, working on a, well, what he thinks is going to be a children's film or a, a nature film. Uh, he travels, apparently, travels, everything in this film is kind of apparently, question mark. Um, he turns up at this uh, Italian film studio um, as this uh, little English fella, um, kind of, completely a fish out of water and is there to, to work on a film entitled the equestrian vortex uh which we see a great title sequence for and is very much in the vein of kind of giallo films of, of the italian kind of horror films of the 1970s um but we never see the film uh all through the the barbarian sound studio we we we, we have the film displayed on the screen as if behind us and we see the guys doing the, the sound effects and this is what um, Toby Jones or Gilderoy is, is uh, working on.
0: Well, I mean, there's a few different things going on. We see the guys doing the foley effects
1: Yeah, Massimo and Massimo. Yeah, we, we, which is <laughs> great. great.
0: But, but yeah, I mean, yeah, there,
1: there, there's
0: there, there's all sorts of different aspects to this. There's the kind of soundproof recording booth. There's the um, yeah. Uh, the, 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 there's the whole bank of equipment that that you know Gilderoy is just playing around with and seems uh, seems to be getting to grips with. But 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 the Foley artists steal the whole film. Oh, they do.
1: Yeah, you could have very easily filled in for one of those guys actually got Uh, yeah there was a lot of like chopping up melons and uh, you know squishing on various fruits and vegetables and and so on to uh, simulate whatever was going on 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 screen I've got a copy on blu-ray and the the color and the sound on it is fantastic watching it again I think because the first time I watched it I was kind of struggling part of me is always struggling kind of make a narrative in my head of what's going on whether it actually be the actual story or just to make some continuity and story for myself and this time I didn't really worry about that too much um, and just let it drift over me. And there's all this kind of 1970s kind of analogue equipment that he's kind of working with and tape spooling and, and various bits of equipment and so on, which, and, which is beautifully, beautifully filmed um, with fantastic music and sound. And
0: uh, what, what's the guy? the guy in the sound booth who's doing the sound effects, what's that? For? Did you make a note of that? What was it? The the, the overexcited goblin or something? Yeah. There's the guy in the sound booth who's just making all these bizarre sound oh, effects. Oh gosh, yes yes, 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 yes. Um, I don't um, know what um, his name was, but yeah. But, but but it's the character in the film was <coughs> doing it for, and it's it's something like your rampant goblin,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, we keep seeing the scores with all the the, the notes on. It's very kind of um, like sort of seeing behind the curtain of how films are made and so yeah. on. Uh, There's Santini, uh, the the film director, who is a very kind of charismatic charismatic character. Um, There's this curious trouble that Toby Jones has with getting his expenses back, which is a very mundane thing, but it becomes just a threatening, kind of bizarre aspect of the film, and I don't think it's ever resolved. And it does a kind of Mulholland Drive um, switch about halfway through, Or, or up till now it's been in Italian and subtitled, except for Toby Jones, who is speaking English. There's this kind of switch halfway in which, I won't give away exactly what happens, but something very kind of bizarre happens akin to what happens in Mulholland Drive. There's a time afterwards in which Gilderoy is now talking Italian. Despite the fact that he's been very clear before that he doesn't speak a word of it. No. Yeah. And we're seeing some of the earlier scenes that we saw before, but now he's in them and he's talking Italian. I was watching an a interview with Strickland, the, the director, Peter Strickland, um, who made the film, I don't think there's any great story to be un- uncovered in it, although it- it's fun trying to do so. Uh, he says it's a homage to the Jello films, when reels might be swapped by accident at the cinema. So it's apparently when, when people <laughs> went to see them back in the 70s, you know, there would be you would be watching it in Italian with English subtitles and then suddenly you'd be watching it, you know, dubbed or something like that. Ah. And films, reels might be knocked out of order, um, which kind of reminds me of... Um, that, that great scene in Grindhouse when oh yeah scene missing <laughs> which is a great thing to do in role playing games where, yeah. where you kind of look at your watch and you realise you've only got ten minutes to do so you do a missing reel yeah. so you say you know you're creeping into the old house and it's like oh my god we've got another hour and a half of this scenario to go but we've only got ten minutes okay missing reel okay you're trapped in the bedroom now and all the zombies are breaking down the door. <laughs> That's what it does. It comes up with missing reel. It yeah. just cuts to... and you're like, You like, just kind of fill it all in in your head. It's great. Mm. Tip of the hat to that kind of thing. It is difficult to make sense of, but it's a great film just to sit back and let it wash over you. Yeah. Um, and, and I'd say try and make some sense of it because it feels like there are things in there that will resonate with you.
0: But the last act is completely ambiguous. Mm. Um, If if, if you're looking for a film with a nice, tidy resolution, you will hate Barbarian Sound Studio. Um, But if, if, you know, you've spent an hour listening to to us talking about weird films. If you made it this far, you'll probably like it.
1: Yeah, I think you should. (laughs)
0: So, um, well, we hope that's enough weirdness to keep you going for the time being. Do seek out some of those films if you haven't seen them. Uh, we'll put some links up on the website uh, to you know, places where you might be able to get hold of them.
2: Yeah. And if you watch Robert, don't blame me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, and 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 if you watch Thundercrack,
1: don't Blame, blame
2: Scott.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure we all had a few films on there that didn't quite make the cut.
0: I, I, um, I, I seriously yeah. think we should do a
1: follow-up here because, yeah, I, I, I had a short list to begin with of something like ten films. Mm-hmm. Something that did occur to me, um, and this is something to, to bring up with the listeners, is I was thinking about other top threes we could do and as I was looking through my, my films, I thought, top three time travel films? Yeah.
2: I've almost... Ah, go- oh, the jacket would have been on that list
1: as well. Well, yeah. you know, there's going to be overlaps. Well, you shot your what now. Yeah, because- <laughs> top three films with twists because there was a, one or two films with twists that I didn't put into the weird films, because they were kind of weird as you watch them, and then they've kind of got this twist, and then you think, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense. And mm-hmm. um, I know what so, be on the
2: top of my list for that one.
1: And there were a few films that I didn't put in, because I didn't feel they kind of fitted, they weren't really that dark or kind of scary, well, not necessarily that these films were scary, but they didn't really seem to fit our, you know, kettle of fish. So, um, <laughs> you said you're gonna, it. You're going to have what? to bleep that. Oh, bitch. bloody hell! <laughs> you corrupted me. <laughs> I was thinking yes. that's a weird thing for me to say. <laughs> you used some kind of voodoo magic on me to make me say that. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Everything is happening according to our design.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, God, so, yes, on, on,
0: on that happy note, there's... <laughs> It's, it's only done to us now to remind you that you can find us on various social media uh, you can find us on YouTube, Facebook and Google Plus as the good friends of Jackson Elias and on uh, Twitter as the good friends of JE not, not that we ever actually update Twitter these days uh, I think that's supposed to be my job and I can't understand how Twitter No, works it's just out. because Twitter sucks, that's why I mean, <laughs> Lots of people seem to find Twitter very useful I'm too old I don't <laughs> understand it
2: I'm just too bloody verbose. I can't fit everything into such a. It'll be a New Year's
0: resolution. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, yeah you, you can't fit updates into 20,000 words, let alone
2: 140 <laughs> characters. That uh, is a good point. <laughs> Especially with the project I'm working on at the minute. Yeah. No.
0: <laughs> so, um, and and also you can find us on our very own website, blasphemoushomes.com.
1: We're recording this a few days after Christmas. Oh, yes. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, we should wish you all a belated happy Christmas. And probably by this time goes out, a belated Happy New Year. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and
0: probably by the time this goes out, a Happy Valentine's Day.
1: Oh, really? <laughs> we should wrap everything together. Happy, happy, happy we Burns Night as well. We'll be we list- wishing that the listeners a Happy Valentine's Day. We oh, are looking... Something, yeah. yeah, something weird <laughs> so about this. a bit this. creepy about that. We yeah. <laughs> need to take a photo of Scott in his hat. <laughs> <laughs> in his, in his, you know... I mean, all of us in our hats. In, anyway. in, oh, yeah.
0: in my creepy serial killer hat. I'm wearing with a
1: normal hat here. It's You're a
0: wearing a fucking
1: fedora. <laughs> It's, it's a normal hat.
0: That's
1: <laughs> fairly normal.
0: <Yeah.
1: laughs> I have to say, it's the most normal of all of us. Yeah, tea cozy, stalker, fedora.
0: What? <laughs> <laughs> on that
1: note. Yes, on that note, we bid on you good on night. Before, Cheerio. And farewell. In
0: the dawn when you be more. Japanese man, made in silver.